0: We kind of took on Sunday a whole punch to Galatians and I'll finish it today, but we're going to skip chunks that we covered on Sunday. So if you don't come on Sundays, you can either just enjoy the whole punch or you can download the messages, I guess. So we'll pick it up, Galatians chapter five, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If you've been with us through Galatians, you know there's a pattern. He's moving towards something. Chapters one and two, I call it history. It's the history of the gospel. Chapters three and four is theology. It's faith. Then chapters five and six is biology. It's the spirit life. So the strings of of the law have been cut and the spirit replaces that and the spirit works in us love. So it's not the law anymore. What is supposed to be the motivation for the believer is love. What I've noticed is religious people, they love their ideas about God and they like their friends. But Jesus people are to love God not your ideas about God, we're to love God and we're to love our enemies, which is incredibly different. It's easy to like your ideas about God and to like your friends. Probably Hitler did that. That's not hard. But to actually love who God is and then love the people that are against you takes something incredible. It takes being freed from all this stuff that we have in our lives And know this, know that the way that I relate to God is based solely on the cross. So I don't have to evaluate how God thinks of me based on what I did yesterday or what I even did this morning. That how I relate to God is constantly based on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that gives you this solid footing. You're free to be you. I'm free to be me. There's no shame. There's no word. It's like a kid, like a little kid. Do they ever care about the clothes they wear really? No, right? They are, back to Genesis 2, they are fine naked and unashamed, right? Like it was always a battle to get clothes on my kids because they could care less about it. You get to that kind of point in life. It's like, I'm not worried about that kind of stuff anymore because I understand that I'm relating to God on a different Foundation that's not law, and now I found that my relationship with God is safe and I'm free. I'm free from bitterness, I'm free from anger, I'm free from unforgiveness, I'm free from shame, I'm free from guilt. Are you free from all those things? Because you're supposed to be. When you know what the cross has accomplished for you, you're free from all those things anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, shame, and guilt. And when you've given up all those, you never end up in verse 15. You're not biting and devouring and all this kind of stuff, being consumed by that stuff. You're not, uh, you don't have all that weight behind you that causes you to react bitterly and unforgivingly and guilt and shame and those things because you've given it up. I think some people, if they gave up unforgiveness and guilt and shame and bitterness, most of their personality would disappear in a good way, in a needed way. And they would truly be set free. And the moment that we go back to law, what happens is we relate to God based on legal stuff. And then we begin to relate to people based on legal stuff. That's unfair, you treated me in whatever it is. It's supposed to be equal, all this kind of stuff. We go back to the covenant of the law and then we get back into verse 15. Biting, devouring, angry, all this stuff. As Jesus people, don't go back to the law. Don't go back to treating people that way. Treat people the same way Jesus has treated you. And you stay out of verse 15, right? I get emails from people every once in a while. It's always interesting how we'll pick and choose the law that we want. So I'll get like an email. Hey, what's that from a parent? What's that one verse that talks about not getting tattoos? I know immediately what's going on there. (laughs) right? It's their son, their daughter is now asking for a piercing or a tattoo. So it's Leviticus 1928. Do not mark your body and do not pierce it. I thought if I get one tattoo, I would get Leviticus 1928, put right on my forearm, <laughs> right? Cause I'm not going back to the law. But I, what I answer parents is this, don't use the law on your kid. Use the New Testament. Use Ephesians 6, verse two, honor your mom and dad. That's a higher law. Is this honoring to your mom and dad, right? If you're still of the age that you need to be in your home, is this an honoring thing to do to mom and dad? That's New Testament. Not law, you can't do it because of this. New Testament elevates it up and says, this is a relational word. Honor is a relational word, right? Law is you can't do, you can do. It comes down to relationship. So I always say that, that's way higher, okay? So this whole thing is based on serving, serving one another. And chapter six is all about service and we'll get there, okay? So you got this incredible little sum, sum, summarizing of really the first part of chapter five. And then immediately verse 16 is the spirit life. We covered this on two Sundays. I'll read it, make a couple quick points and then we're done with chapter 5, and then do chapter 6. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident." Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like things like these. I love that. Like I could keep going, but I won't. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit and let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We did two on this, spirit life. Um, we didn't look at this list, verses 19 through 21, where you see these lists of all these bad things. You see these in Romans and Ephesians here. When you read a list like this in the Bible, what do you do with it? Do you use it to point fingers at people? Like, yeah, you, whatever it is. I used to do that with these lists. Even sometimes thinking about people that fit the exact definition of the the word in the list. I did that till I was studying through Romans one once. And Romans one is the most extensive list. It starts out, it's just, it's unbelievable. Murder, adultery, jealousy, envy. It just hammers at you. It's just got them all. And then it ends by saying this after murder and adultery, and they disobeyed their parents. And up to that point, I was like, yeah, that guy, that guy, that guy. And then I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Murder, adultery, and they did not make their bed. Whoa. <laughs> I found myself in the list. That's what the lists are supposed to do. They're supposed to be a mirror where you realize, oh no, I'm in this list. Every one of us is in this list if you just said, no, I'm not, you're a liar. Welcome to the list, (laughs) you're in now. They're supposed to be evaluating our hearts. These are all works of the flesh. Everyone has works of the flesh. In order to get over the works of the flesh, we require something new, something better than the law. And that's where we get the spirit. You require God's spirit. I know we live in 2018. And we can look at our world today and we're highly sexualized by any historic standard. But that's nothing new. If if you look at verse 19, it begins with sexual immorality, impurity, which is, you can figure that out, sensuality, and then verse 21, orgies. So it's not like, oh my goodness, 2018, we are really, really crazy. No, it's always been bad. It's always been hard. But I think as Christians, we should have a very balanced view of sex. Like, we have to be not as dirty, look out for it, but God gave this incredible gift called sex to humans. Like, it's his idea. He's the plumber on it all, it's his idea in Genesis 2. And there are really good things about sex when it's inside of a marriage. Sex is a gift, it's a servant to marriage. Like um, there's chemicals that are released, oxytocin, that actually bind a couple together closer during sex. Like that, that all happens, it's beautiful, it's brilliant. It is the servant of a marriage, but it enslaves an individual. So you have to be very careful with it. It can get twisted and it can become, today it's like people identify, it's like that. It is their, it's their marker almost, what they are sexually. So it's got, it's got out of control. Um, when sex is inside of a marriage, it's brilliant. It, it really, it, it means this. It means that, that two people are covenanting with each other and they're really saying, you know what? I've seen the crazy in you and that will never drive me away from you. That I'm sticking here and if I'm gonna fight with somebody, it will be with you alone and that's it. And there's something brilliant and beautiful. You have the opportunity To have what the Old Testament called, they use these words, one of them is dode. It means literally the intermingling of souls. You have the chance of that. Outside of marriage, you don't even have the chance of it. Something brilliant and beautiful and incredible and awesome. I was reading an article yesterday. Um, There's this group, they call them now theolibs. It's theological liberals, theolibs. And it was on sex. And there's these very like, they're getting all the press now. I won't even mention them. But they have a very progressive view on sexuality that we would say is not the same as what we've learned from the Bible. And they were talking about compatibility. Like, how do you know if you're compatible with a person if you don't try them out before you get married? Have you heard that before? And I thought, I was thinking about that, like, compatible. Like if you have the tools, you're compatible. Are you a man? Yes. Is she a woman? Yes. You're compatible. Like to me, it's that simple, right? Like you're compatible. We all learned that in an awkward film in the seventh grade, you're compatible. There's no, I don't, I don't understand the question at all. You're compatible. It's all these ways of lessening the biblical model and making it okay to do things that are outside of it. But sex outside of marriage, here's what I tell people. It's like this, it's like nuclear power. Nuclear power, when it's inside of the concrete confines of a reactor, super beneficial. Charge your Tesla, charge your iPhone, turn on lights. Man, it's brilliant. Take away that concrete confines of the nuclear reactor. What do you have? radiation, death, disease, disaster. That's sex outside of marriage. God knows what he was doing. Inside, beautiful, brilliant, outside, dangerous. And so this text actually begins with, yeah, sex is gonna be a problem. It's always gonna be a problem. And you require the spirit to fight it. It's that simple. You won't win this battle alone. You need God's spirit at work in you. And then it says, and this always trips people up, and it should. I warn you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't have time to talk about like, is there a difference between inheritance and salvation? And there's people that make that differentiation and they do that based on Jesus and the parable of the talents and what we do with what we have. And there's an inheritance based on that. Um, I'll just do it this way. The word do in verse 21 is the Greek word "prasso," from where we get practice. So your version of the Bible might actually say, have a different word than do. It might say, practice these things. So this is not, hey, I blew it, I made a mistake. This is someone whose life is bent on practicing, perfecting these things. So it's getting gussied up Friday night to go out and do verse 19. And there's a big warning, if that's in my heart, if that's the motivation for my life, that's a big check. Where am I at then? I better be very careful because we looked at what God's spirit does for us on a couple Sundays. And one of the things it does for us is it battles for us and says, "Uh uh-uh, you don't wanna do that, Matt. That's gonna hurt you, don't do that. And if I don't have that battle in me, then where's the spirit? So it's those who practice these things. And then he just ends that beautiful fruit of the spirit by saying, Against such things, all these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things, there is no law. You cannot legislate love, right? Anyone good? like you can't force one person to love another person, it will never work. That is something that has been tried and tried and tried, it will never work. But the other side is this, you can't outlaw it. The spirit in the believer is not subject to the laws of the world. Here's the best illustration I've ever heard of this. Who has heard of Adrian Rogers? Brilliant Bible teacher, man. He's he's just Southern Baptist gentleman. He tells this story. He's flying back from Europe from a conference lands in Washington, D.C., going through customs, and he gets behind this guy who is pulling out his stuff at the customs drawer or table, and he pulls out this block of cheese from Belgium. And he said, I bought this in Belgium, but they told me that I could bring it into the United States. And so the custom officer looks at it and goes, Um, "'Sir, I'm sorry, but this isn't allowed in. You can't bring this into the United States.'" And the man's like, "'No, man, I have a receipt right here. He promised me that it'd be okay, that I could bring this cheese into the United States.'" Now, I'm sorry, sir, but I can tell you right away that this is not allowed in the United States.'" "'You're wrong, I wanna talk to somebody else.'" And the man just said, the customs officer said, "'Listen, under no circumstance will you be bringing that cheese into the United States.'" And the man said, "'Oh, yeah, yeah.'" Stepped out of line, grabbed that cheese, Unwrapped it and just started eating it. <sniffs> Ate the whole block, got back in line. Can I bring the cheese in now? <laughs> Custom officer said, Yep, you can. That's the spirit in us. There's no customs officer, there's no law that can take it, take it out of us. It's inside of us. You can't legislate against Christianity, it's been tried. You read the last 2000 years of Christian history and there's been times, France, Russia, it's called the war on God. Like they even tried to change the week to 10 days or to five days. They tried to change the day because they wanted to get rid of God. Anything that resembled the seven days of Genesis chapter one didn't work. Or maybe my favorite example is China. When Chairman Mao took over in the late 1940s, and kicked all the missionaries out. They estimated that there's between 50 and 75,000 Christians in China, over a hundred years of work going back to Hudson Taylor in the 1840s. So hundred years of work, 50, 75,000 Christians. And then it just went dark, China went dark until Chairman Mao died in the late 1970s. And they found another like, like a blip, how many Christians are in China? Guess how many? 25 to 30 million. When Chairman Mao was stamping it out saying there's you know, atheism, we're teaching that, it, all, it just exploded. Today, they're estimating between 200 and 300 million Christians are in China right now, right? So Chairman Mao unwittingly is the greatest evangelist in history because <laughs> you cannot legislate against the spirit in the believer. The most powerful force ever, brilliant, Like they say right now, we look at Acts chapter two and we read it and 3,000 people get saved in one day and we're like, that's awesome. Since I've been preaching, 3,000 people have been saved. Every 25 minutes around our country, around the world, I should say, 3,000 people come to salvation every 25 minutes because that's the power of God's spirit and the believer working with love, joy, peace, peace. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. There's no law. And it's exploded. Take hope. So that's chapter five. Chapter six. Chapter five is the spirit. You got to have the spirit. Strings of the law are gone. You're a real boy now. You're not Pinocchio. No strings on you. You got to have God's spirit. But we also need something else. We need the saints. And that's chapter six. You have to be in the community of saints. And this chapter is brilliant. And I would ask this question before we start. How do you know someone is spiritual? Bible degree, quoting Bible verses, original languages. What is it? I would say Galatians chapter six, how you respond to a sinner. The measure of your spirituality is how you respond to a sinner. Look at this, listen to this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, not just saying Christians, Christians, you'll be known by your loved one for another. This is, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. I love this. It's how you respond to a sinner. Do I respond by being like, I would never do that. Or I always knew they were fake. I have the spirit of discernment. Hallelujah let That's not in here. It's real simple. This is what this text says. Number one, sin happens. That's verse one, right? People get in transgression. Do you know what a transgression is? It's different than a sin. A sin is missing the mark. A transgression is, here's the line you jumped over it. It's when you tell your kid, Please don't jump on the DVD player. And what do they do? They jump on the DVD player. And it actually uses this word caught. It's like a, um, it would be overtaken or literally it ran you down. This thing ran you down. It's what you would do to your son or daughter if they jumped on the DVD player. You'd run them down. That's what the sin does. It runs them down and tackles them. Sin happens. Sin will happen in people that you know. How do you respond? When sin happens to you, how do you respond? One of the most interesting conversations I had with a guy, I remember it to this day, I can still see it in my mind. We're at our old office, Babe's Bakery. And this guy was coming out and I'm coming in. I said, hey, how you doing? He goes, good, hey, I have a question for you. And for at least 30 minutes, we debated. Calvinism versus Arminianism, which is just a pretzel, theologically. I mean, you can go on and on and on and on. And that's what we did, on and on. It was just wonderful. So we did this. And finally, we're like, okay, all right, we're done. We, we had our sword fight, great. And then the next day I found out this exact guy was unfaithful to his wife and been that way for a while. It made me so mad. Why are we debating this this debate that's not gonna be solved. We're not gonna solve it. It hasn't been solved in 400 years. Why are we debating this when you're unfaithful to your wife? It just seems so ridiculous to me. It's like being on fire and asking for a marshmallow instead of a, 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 a fire extinguisher. Hey, what's that smell? Barbecued me. Can I have a marshmallow, please? Dude, you're on fire. Get help. If you have transgressed, get help. Get help. Admit it. Get help. That's what this is saying, get help. If you're spiritual and you see somebody that's on fire, what are you supposed to do? Well, there's a bunch of stuff in here. I'll give them all to you. Number one, gently, right? In a spirit of gentleness, not being shocked by them, not being like, I can't believe that. Oh man, right. We act like sin is something that is foreign to us. Give me a break. There's no one like that. And a spirit of gentleness means, okay, you're not a moron. I get it. Let's walk this out. I'm not very good at this because I can tend to be very much like, come on, give me a break, dude. Figure it out. I'm trying to be more gentle. I think this, maybe one of my daughters illustrates this. So uh, a couple of years ago, she went on a church camp thing. And uh, one of the volunteers told me the funniest thing happened with your daughter. I said, okay, tell me. And we were on this table and it was, it was leaning like this. And there was this little girl on the other side and she was trying to put grapes on her plate, but they kept rolling off her plate because the table's in an angle. So my daughter's like, oh, come here, sit next to me on this side, which is my wife. That would be my wife and my daughter. And so the little girl picks up her plate, comes over, sits next to my daughter. She starts trying to put grapes on this side. They're rolling down into her lap. She goes, they're still rolling down. Then my daughter responded like this, get over it. That's me coming out of my daughter. So I gotta work on this. Instead of telling people to get over it, listen, listen, what happened? Why'd you do that? Let's talk. It's like this now, here's how I try to think about it. I try to think like, if someone broke their leg, even if they're doing something stupid, right? Trying to jump on their motorcycle too far, but they snap their leg, how will I treat them? Well, I'd be like, you moron! Come on, man, kick them or something. No, because their leg is broken. I'm gonna treat them gently. Even if they did something moronic to get there, I'm still gonna treat them gently and try to help them and get them somewhere, right? That's the same way we should look at people that have transgressed. It's like you broke your leg. Yeah, you're probably a moron, but I don't have to tell you that. I can just walk with you and help you and walk this thing out. So number one, gently. Number two, with humility. Consider yourself, lest you be tempted. Never act like you're better than someone else when they're sinning. Don't be the Luke 18 Pharisee that stands up all puffed up and says, Jesus, I'm so glad that I tithe, I fast twice a week, I read my Bible, and I'm not like that sinner. Don't ever be like that. It's a spirit of humility. Jesus taught us to pray like this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's a spirit of humility. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, he would say, hey, look out when you think you're standing lest you fall. Proverbs would say, Proverbs 26 would say, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Those are all humble kind of verses. Humility, humility, humility. And then you restore them. The word restore is literally from what people would do with nets. You got a net that got ripped, you would restore it. You'd sew it back together. Why would you do that? To hang it on the wall? No, to keep using it. Sometimes the restoration process in church is, well, you sinned this way, so you're out. You're getting hung on the wall now can't use you anymore, that's not this term at all, It's to restore back to original use. How can I get you back involved, back serving, back doing what you were designed to do? And then we bear, we bear one another's burden. This is something that happens to somebody that's going to just crush them. How do you bear someone's burden In a situation that would crush them, I think there's one way you serve them. So if a family's going through difficulty, maybe it's a divorce, maybe it's adultery, maybe it's unfaithfulness, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's it's just something that you say that is massive, that's big, that's crushing, then you say, as the body, as a spiritual person, let me babysit your kids, let me serve you a meal. Let me help you. Let me drive. Let let me come. Let me, this is too hard for you. Or I just put it this way. Do the job no one else wants to do in their life. Do the dirtiest job you can imagine. Do you know why I say that? John chapter 13. Jesus with a bunch of dudes sitting around. There's a dirty job there that no one wants to do. What does Jesus do? Strips himself, puts a towel on, says, I'm gonna wash your guys' feet. Washes Judas's feet. Comes to Peter, what does Peter say? No way, no way you're not doing that. And then Jesus says, if I don't do this, you have no part in me. Then what does Peter say? Wash my whole body. Jesus like, hey, we're not going there, bro. Just your feet, come on, man. <laughs> right? He did the job no one else wants to do. Now, we all think about that and we have these like foot washing times and it's like cool and neat That's not at all the way it was back then. So I tried to like, how do you contextualize this today? It'd be like this. I don't know who is the most famous person you can imagine coming over to your house. Let's say it's Joe Montana. So Joe Montana, he comes over to your house for dinner. And you're like, yeah, Joe Montana. I love Joe Montana. Greatest football player in history. So he's over, you're having dinner. And then just great meal, great conversation, reliving the glory days, Super Bowls, all that kind of stuff. And then he, he excuses himself to go to the bathroom. He's in there a long time. You're like, what's going on? Oh no! So you quietly go over to the bathroom and you open the door, and there's Joe Montana down on his hands and knees, and he's scrubbing your toilet. How would you feel? You'd be like, dude, Joe, dude, what are you doing? He's like, man, this toilet is filthy. Who can't aim in this house? your wife's like, I've been saying that for 20 years. Yes. (laughs) That would be the same kind of thing. The most important person you can imagine doing the most disgusting job ever. That's what Jesus did. The dirty job that no one else wanted to do. And then what did he say to his disciples? Verse 17. If you've seen me do this, do the same thing because you're gonna be happy This is the path to joy. Spiritual people understand that the path to joy is not being the top and being served up here. Spiritual people understand actually the path to joy is being gentle and humble and walking with people out of temptation and out of transgression and serving them and doing the job that no one else wants to do. Spiritual people actually get that. Like that brings true, deep joy. So spiritual people They're gentle, they're humble, they restore, they bear, and then the last one is, they prove who they are. They don't tell people who they are, right? Let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. You prove it. You don't tell people, you prove it. I always struggle with people that tell me they're gifted or I'm called to this. It may be true, but I don't know. I seldom use those words for myself. Well, I'm gifted at this or I'm called to this or be careful. I'm gonna prove it first. I'm gonna get out there and prove that I am gifted or I'm called or whatever it is to those things. Well, how do you prove it? Here's how I prove giftedness it's joy squared. If I'm gifted at something, it will bring me joy when I do it and it'll bring other people joy when I do it. So if I say, I am a gifted singer and every time I sing, people are plugging their ears, probably not my gift. Might bring me joy, but nobody else. And to young people, I always tell them this, just go try a bunch of stuff. Just try a bunch of stuff. Find out what, what causes your heart to sing after Jesus. What just, oh, I want more of that. And if people are saying the same thing, it's brilliant. Just try it. Try tons of stuff. Make tons of mistakes. That's how you get better. You guys, you remember the pottery example? I'll give it again. So this, this great study, this professor, a, a pottery professor did a really a, a so like a, he just did an experiment with his kids. So he took his class, divided it in half. Half of me told this, you guys will be graded on one project, make it a masterpiece. The other half of the class, he said, you're gonna be based, you're gonna be graded on quantity. 50 pounds of pottery, I don't care what it looks like. A, 40 pounds of pottery, B, 30 pounds of pottery, C, and just let them loose. At the end of the semester, the best Pieces of pottery did not come from the first crew. They came from the second crew. The guys and the gals that were just able to try things and fail and try something else and fail. And they got better and better and better and better. Just get out there and try stuff. And it brings you joy and brings other people joy. Listen to feedback. Hey, that was really good. Or hey, that was okay. Listen to feedback to people that you really trust. And that's how you find your giftness. That's how you prove it. And then lastly, This little phrase, for each will have to bear his own load. It seems like a contradiction, right? You have verse two, bear one another's burdens. And then verse five, each will have to bear his own load. Here's how I explain this. Uh, Myself and a couple of guys have done the PCT. And the first time we did it, Pacific Crest Trail, we went up there, we're hiking. And there's just a code. You carry your own backpack. You don't ask somebody else to carry your backpack. You carry your own backpack. So I had my son Elijah with me. He was six at the time. Um, and we're, we're hiking, we're going. It's our last day. And I'm pushing the whole crew a little bit because I'm wanting to get home. And I'm pushing us. I pushed Elijah a little bit too hard. He overheated, puked all over the place, passed out on the side of that trail. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> so it was just Justin Buchanan and myself at this time. The other guys had gone ahead. So we're just waiting for Elijah to just wake up. He doesn't wake up. I'm like, oh, this is really bad. So in that instance, what I had to do was I had to take my backpack and put it on my front and Justin Buchanan was kind enough, he took about half my stuff. So my backpack was probably right when 30, 35 pounds because I had my stuff and Elijah's stuff. So he took about half of it. It was down to like 15 pounds. And then I put Elijah on my shoulders and then bent over and walked about five miles out like that, just miserable. Now, in that case, I needed help. Every other time, man, carry your own load, you can do it. But there are times when situations arise that you say, no, that's crushing. For you to carry your own backpack and your son on your back is crushing. So let me help you. Spiritual people discern between backpacks and burdens. You're to carry your own backpack because it makes you stronger, makes you better. But sometimes you're burdened and it's just gonna crush you and it requires the body of Christ to come around you and undergird you and help you, right? Big things, you need help. But I'm not coming over to your house and teaching family devotions for you. That's your job. You have to raise your kids. So my job as pastor, you, raise, you will give an account to God about how you raise your kids. I want the account to God about your kids, right? It's your backpack, if you would. And spiritual people are able to discern between, is this a burden that will crush this person and they require help? Or is this a backpack that they need to bear because it's actually making them stronger? and making them the kind of people that Jesus wants them to be. So that's the discernment. We did verses six through 10 on Sunday, verse 11, and we'll be done very quickly. See with what large, eye, large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. I almost said large eyes. Like, uh, what is that? Little Red Riding Hood. See what large eyes you have. Oh my goodness. Too many kids books. They get in you and they come out. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. As for all who walk by this rule, peace, mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now, On From now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit brothers, amen. Paul has the death knell here. Circumcision does not matter. Imagine the Judaizers or the legalists or the Pharisees, whatever you wanna call them, reading that line right there. The defining mark of Judaism going back to Genesis 17 doesn't mean a thing. Woo! (laughs) Here's what I found. You cannot tell a legalist that something doesn't matter. I can tell when I'm being a legalist when I start making things matter because you can't tell them, right? I can tell when I'm free when I keep coming back to Jesus and the cross, and that the things that I'm doing, I'm doing them not because I think it makes Jesus love me more, but I'm doing them because I love them, period. Like fasting. Like if I'm fasting to try to impress people or try to get Jesus to love me more, then I'm gonna try to convince everyone else they need to fast with me. It's gonna be really, really, you need to fast. But if I'm doing it because, man, I love fasting. It just gives me time to pray and think about things that I need to think about. Clears my head a bunch. Man, it's awesome. Then I don't really care if you wanna do it or not. I'm like, it's benefiting me. I love it. Does that make sense? But a legalist, like they have to fight over everything. King James Version only. Every other Bible is corrupt. Really? The Geneva Bible is corrupt? The Tyndale Bible, really? Come on. You have to sing these songs only and that's it. You must preach this way. You have to begin your prayer this way and you have to end your, it's like they just wanna fight over everything. That's how I know I'm being a legalist. When I start putting up lots of dukes and fighting over things that I think, I don't know if that really matters. And I'm not living in verse 16. Peace and mercy. I'm not there at all. Because I'm fighting and fighting and fighting it really boils down to, and I've said this, I'm gonna guess a half dozen times in Galatians. It really boils down, boils down to what you think about God, your theology, theology proper. What's your, what's, what is God love? Does God love forced labor? Where you're just gritted teeth, just, okay, God, I hate this. I'm gonna do it though, because it makes you happy. If that's your vision of God, you'll be a legalist, right? Do you love it when your kids do that to you? I'm like, okay, fine, I'll do my chores. I've always had chores for my kids, right? Like, you have to do these chores, you have to do these chores, all right, do these chores. And, and this one night, maybe for whatever reason, one of my kids got snappy with me. I'm like, your chore is to, wash the, to wipe off the table. And she said, I washed the table last week. I'm like, listen, the table gets wiped three or four times a day, right? That means it's been wiped 21 times since you last did it. Wipe the table, it's your chore. And she looked at me, she said this, what's your chore, daddy? I said, putting up with you. (laughs) Okay, that's my chore right now. I don't like that. There's no part of that. I'm like, now the the child that's like, dad, can I help? No, I love that. But the force kind of, you gotta do, I don't like that. God doesn't like that. It's not what he's after, right? Not at all. Not at all. Here's what I think he's after. It's John chapter 10. And Jesus says this, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And we on the Western hemisphere, 21st century are very different than Eastern shepherds are. If you've ever watched like a Western shepherder move his sheep, they've usually, they're on a quad. They've got these dogs that run around and nip and they're pushing the herd where they want them to go. And the herd is like kind of anxious and worried and, and bouncing around and stressed out. But they, they get them where they want them to go, no doubt. But it's not pretty. That's not at all the way an Eastern shepherd would have done it. What an Eastern shepherd would do is they'd bring their flock at night to this big compound. It was a communal compound. All these other sheep, like you know, 14, 15 different shepherds would bring their flocks in there. And then early, early in the morning, the shepherd would come to the door of the flock or the sheepfold, open the door, and then he would sing a song. And that song would be a song that all of his sheep knew because he sang it all the time. And his sheep would literally hear him sing that song. They'd wake up in the sheepfold and they'd just come out to him. And he'd just walk away. And he used to be walking and the sheep would hear his voice and they'd leave the sheepfold and they'd just get in single line behind him and follow him wherever he went. He didn't have to force him. Didn't have to do, you know, get dogs and bark. He didn't do that. Now, why would they follow him like that? Because they knew we're gonna end up in a green pasture next to still waters. Like where he goes, we want to be. That's the life of the believer. It's knowing the shepherd of Psalm 23, that when I follow him, I love where I end up. That's Galatians, right? The Judaizers were Western, nipping, biting, forcing, pushing. That's the only way to get people where you want them to be. No, it's not. Jesus would say, if they hear the Savior's song and they know me, they'll follow me. That's how you get rid of legalism. You know Jesus. You know the shepherd of Psalm 29, 23. You know that, that. This is still waters and green pastures and his rod and their staff, they comfort me. Oh, where else would I wanna be? That's the whole point. It's why Paul ends by simply saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you your spirit, amen. So Jesus, this day, may we hear your voice and follow you. May we have come to know you as the good shepherd. That even if we're in difficult circumstances, in a valley of a shadow of death, You're with us. That you're not looking for forced labor. You're looking for friends. And I ask that each one of us that know you in this room, that we could hear your voice clearly. And because of our love for you, we would follow you. Not being forced to, not because the law has been laid down on us, not because we've been nipped and bit into shape, but rather because you've demonstrated your deep love for us, that you gave your life for us. And now you're calling us to you. And may we respond and follow well. May your spirit be an empowering force in us this night, this day, this week, empowering us to be good husbands and good wives, good parents, good grandparents, good neighbors to hard people that need you, good workers, good employees, good citizens of Josephine County. May your spirit empower us to do those things. May we hear behind us, even this night, tomorrow, may we hear your whisper saying, this is the way, walk in it. Tune us in, Lord to your voice, because that's what we need. And we ask these things in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.